our review of Matthew Syed's Black Box Thinking. Last time we talked about the first three parts, and this time we're going to talk about the uh, final three parts. And part four was, before we talk about part four, I better say hello to James, because he's here with me as well. How are you, James? Good, good. How are you? Yeah, good. How do you find the second half of the book? I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. Completely agree, yeah. Really... Really great story, not just his opinion, backed up with loads of fact and yeah. anecdotes. Really engaging read. Very much. Yeah, fantastic, I thought. Absolutely fantastic. Okay. Part four is talking about small steps and giant leaps. And yep. the first chapter was talking about something some people may have heard of. Uh, it was titled Marginal Gains. <clears throat> yep. Yeah. You know what marginal gains most associated <laughs> with? Is it, uh, this is the cycling thing, is it? Exactly, yes. This is the guy, Dale, Dave Brailsford, who first of all revolutionized cycling at the Olympics and we won all these medals at the Olympics, went from nowhere to, I don't know how many medals, we, I think, yeah, 10, yeah, here we go, we go from two medals when he first started to 10 and then he said, yeah, we're going to win the Tour de France in five years. And then I said, don't be, don't be ridiculous. There's no way an Englishman is going to win the Tour de France. And, and the rest is history. And mm. essentially what Dale, Dave Brailsford did, he talked about breaking things down into small parts and improving each little part to get a marginal gain in each part. And then the whole added together will deliver a huge increase when mm. you put them all back together. Yeah, very interesting what he does. I've got a mate involved in cycling and he's oh, told yeah. me the things. And I remember days when he was winning the Tour de France, he used to hate it when his lead rider, so Bradley Wiggins or Chris Froome, and they had to wear the yellow Tour jersey because oh, yeah. what Dale Sprayford had done, he'd created a jersey, the Sky Team jersey that the pros wear, was had masses more elastic than any other jersey he'd ever had in it. And it made it really tight and body hugging which made the ride maybe save five seconds through mm. aerodynamics but it saved five seconds and and then Chris Froome was in the lead and he had to wear the official jersey which wasn't designed anywhere near as well as what the Sky jersey was so that, that was his attention to detail he had everything the Sky bus which had masseuses and yeah. certain kind of heating on it and most people yeah never did anything like that and yeah. all these little things added together Sky has dominated Ineos it is now isn't it they've mm. just dominated the Tour de France for years and mm. yeah people, yeah okay. and then at the bottom of 185 he, he then moves on to charity doesn't he he does yeah he talks about Esther Dufflo and, and what's happened in Africa and he puts forward the idea that maybe we should be doing randomly controlled trials which we spoke about last time yeah in um, charity but what he's saying is sometimes for issues are so big that it's difficult or impossible to conduct randomly controlled trials. Yeah, yeah. You know, because you need a control group. But then he talks about, I'm going on to 188, talks about breaking big problems down into smaller problems and to, to see if you can actually do a, a, a trial. And he goes on to talk about these students who receive free textbooks in, the, in their schools in Africa, and they didn't seem to be performing any better than those that didn't receive the textbooks. And actually, what they found out was if they gave the, the poor, these poor children a deworming medication, it actually that 
that's improved their education far more than textbooks because yeah. it meant they were in school to actually learn stuff. Yeah. And then the bottom paragraph of 189, Matthew Syed said this was a marginal gain. Yeah. The fact that they, they hit upon this idea of giving these, these kids this medication. So I quite, I quite like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it was an interesting extra story. It wasn't just about the cycling. It, it, mm. it then uh, talked about how it's not, it can be applied in the charity sector. The, the next bit I picked up on was yeah. it then talked about how it applies in Formula One. It goes into oh, yeah. quite a lot of detail about Formula yeah. but it was just talking about how the whole thing was engineeringly driven. And it says, people think it's exhausting to think about success at such a high level of detail. This is Dave Brailsford. But it would be far more exhausting for me to neglect doing the analysis. I'd much rather have clear answers and delude myself that I have the right answers. So again, it's similar to what we said before about the last time when we talked about the the kids who were taken to jail and they gave up crime, but actually Mm. they were deluding themselves. They hadn't done that proper analysis and random control test on yeah, it. Yeah, I like on 194 towards the bottom. He says, you improve your data set before you begin to improve your final function. Yeah. I think that's what comes across in the Formula 1 stuff is actually how much stuff they're counting. And, oh, uh, it, was, it was almost, to talk about it, it almost becomes a bit dull, but yeah, yeah. on each wheel nut, they had something like eight separate electronic sensors to work out all the different talks all kinds of stuff on a wheel nut so uh, yeah but i i thought it was brought together quite well on 196 where he said the basic proposition of this book is that we have an allergic attitude to failure we try to avoid it we try to cover it up and airbrush it from our lives we talked last time about cognitive dissonance Careful use euphemisms we used. Oh, they were really sick anyway, we might remember. And then anything to divorce us from the pain we feel when we're confronted with the realization that we've underperformed. But this complete contrast Brailsford, the, the third charity economist Dufflo, and Vols, who runs Mercedes Formula One, mm. they see weakness with a different set of eyes. Every error, every flaw, every failure, however small is a marginal gain in disguise. Mm-hmm. And it's an opportunity, not a threat. I thought that just, there's some really successful people who yeah. are happy to fail because it's a learning experience. Yeah. And it's the same as, it just ties it all quite nicely. That's what aviation experts do and that's the whole black box thinking, isn't it? Mm. Okay. So then he goes on to talk about Google, which I know is a bit you like. Again, it just shows the humility. Uh, a bloke called Jamie Devine, he was the top designer of Google. Yeah, and uh, I think he'd come up with a new shade of blue to use on the Google toolbar. Yeah. So rather than say, oh, Jamie, you're wonderful, let's do that. He thought it was going to improve click-throughs and all of that, but they didn't do that. And they said, well, you know what, Jamie? Not a bad idea, but let's test it. Right. And, and I think that is not how it's done in the criminal justice system or... Yeah a lot of hospitals if a consultant says this is what we're going to do that's often what you do but they went through an iterative process and actually came to the conclusion i think it was turquoise was it or something yeah it, it wasn't blue anyway the point was and the guy put his hand up and said well, fair enough we're basing things on evidence yeah yeah i like that but it's by, by 2010 google were carrying out 12,000 yeah randomized yeah. control trials amazing so they just 
And to be honest, it's not difficult to do, is it, James? It's just, mm. it's almost, it's very symptomatic of having humility that you are not amazing. You can learn, and by not doing it, it's a bit arrogant. I think, oh, well, I'm better than everyone else. Yeah. So, okay. yeah. And then they talked a little bit about... Uh, cap- talked- yeah. So, Go on, tell me about what... Well, cap- just, 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 I, I thought I found that really interesting. This yeah. I didn't realise they were quite that successful, but basically they, they did their own little tests and they had a laboratory where every typeface, every colour used in their marketing material was evaluated to see the impact and all it was, a, it was a credit card company that even just outsourced and passed on all that credit card stuff. But the company was valued at 45 billion. And it was just really understanding what works through an iterative process again, not through any amazing innovative thinking. Yeah. Okay. And then 202, you like this one, James. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, was, was this the guy, was this the eating fella? Yes, this Japanese chap. An impoverished student, Takaru <laughs> Obayashi. Kobayashi, he, yes. He saw a speed eating contest. It's like one of those Clive James one. things, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. And he got into, he, he perfected eating um, hot dogs and he, he broke the world <laughs> record. I think the world record when he, when he went for it was 25 hot dogs in 12 minutes and he managed to eat 50 hot dogs in 12 minutes because he basically he, he separated the bread from the hot dog and then I think he made the bread a little bit wet all legal to do but he managed to it was basically applying the science and yeah. an iterative process to stuff in your face with how many hot dogs was it 50 or something 50 yeah in, in, in 12 minutes yeah so he managed to put 50 hot dogs down in without vomiting because the key is you're not allowed to vomit yeah uh, which was known in the sport as a reversal of fortune. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I like that. Then there was a, just an interesting little anecdote, which kind of part six started on 203 yep. of this chapter. And, and he just said, this is great, this marginal gains idea, and it will help optimize your existing business. But sometimes you might need a paradigm shift and I think you mentioned about Blockbuster, how yeah. Blockbuster maybe made returns of videos and DVDs better, but they completely ignored the threat of Netflix and yeah. ended up bust, basically. Yeah. So it's not just about marginal gains, but it's a great way to improve things. It's something we should be doing. Yeah, exactly. I like that. He said, you've got to consider the big picture, the, the guest out, he calls it, yeah. or, the, or the fine detail, the margins. Yeah. yeah. I like that. Good chapter. Yeah, good chapter. Okay. Chapter 10, how failure drives innovation. Yep. Still uh, about I, Dyson. It's always about Dyson, but I think, yeah, yeah, that you can relate that to life. A lot of successful people in life have often triumphed out of adversity, haven't they? they yeah. They might have, had they not lost their job or whatever, they would have still been a, a vet or something. They wouldn't have tried to run their own business or change yeah. the world or whatever. But yeah, it talks all about James Dyson how he failed, oh my goodness, I can't remember how many times, but thousands. I think uh, it says it a little bit later on. Yeah, he had 5,127 prototypes. Right. But he he started it with wood in his shed and stuff. And he had three kids. He had no money, but he just didn't give up. Yeah. Incredible story, really. It is an incredible story. Almost unbelievable, but true. I, Uh, I don't know whether there's a lot of marketing involved in Dyson. Yeah, I've, I've had a few Dysons and um, 
yeah, I've just had a, a builder with a different vacuum cleaner, which I'm, I think it actually worked better than my Dyson. And his cleaner cost about 70 quid. My Dyson was a few hundred. <laughs> anyway, we might get a suit for that, James. We better not talk about that. Okay. Maybe I need to clean my filter just in case anyone from Dyson is <laughs> listening. The point is, it's, uh, again, this guy did not get there by kind of luck. He got there by huge amounts of trial and error and he didn't he couldn't afford a computer i remember that as well he yeah. couldn't afford a computer he used to write it all down in a book all the little lessons the thousands of lessons he learned yeah, yeah. so yeah it was quite there was a lot about dyson actually in that chapter okay. the one last thing that i liked about it was what they were saying was the, the innovations that he came up with the people had he didn't come up with them yeah he was the guy that made them work on a practical basis yeah, exactly. Because yeah. he did all those... No, good know. point, James. Yeah, I agree. And that then dovetailed quite nicely what you just said there, James, into 222, where it talks yeah. about okay. Pixar, I think, have been even more successful than Disney, haven't they? Wasn't it George Lucas who started Pixar up? Well, uh, it was George Lucas. I read about this the other day. George Lucas owned Pixar, and then he was getting divorced, and he needed cash in a hurry. Oh, did so he? He sold Pixar to Steve Jobs. Oh, so uh, yeah, and it was oh, good story, James. Yeah, I like that. One. Yeah, that's so. why I'm on the podcast with you, mate. Very good. <laughs> um, but in case you don't know who Pixar is at all, some people might not. They did Toy Story, they did Monsters yeah. Inc., they did Finding Nemo, and um, the, the kind of traditional way in which this would happen: a lead author would come up with a storyline, and uh, that would be the story basically. But they didn't do it like that in Pixar. They went through thousands of iterations and changing and didn't monsters inc start as something about a, uh, a middle-aged accountant which yeah. hates job and it evolved into monsters inc Isn't that, how did he get there but they did and it was massively successful took 600 million at the box office mm. same with toy i think toy story was the best anima, computer animated film ever i think mm. but all through trial and error yeah an iterative process okay yeah so like that and it was interesting. I, then I think it was the kind of last section of this chapter I liked was was uh, a quote on education and how maybe it's getting a bit profound, but how how we should maybe educate a bit different and how we award our kids and how many A stars they get and all that. And I'm not sure it's necessarily always about that's about education and and what Dyson does. In fact, one of my daughters has gone to Dyson's. You know, she she was an A star student, but she's gone to work for Dyson as an apprentice and is getting a degree at the same time. Mm. And what Dyson advocates, he says, we provide children with the tools they need, not just to answer questions, but to ask questions. Mm. And the problem with academia is it's all about being good at remembering things like chemical formula theories, because that's what we have to regurgitate in our exams. But children aren't allowed to learn through experimenting and experience. And in mm. some cultures, you, you would get ne- in China, you get negative marking. So really? I, I don't, yeah, yeah. So it's best to say nothing and break even yeah. than to something and get it wrong. So that yeah. completely kills any experimentation and experience. And yeah. as Dyson says, it's a real pretty, you need both. You, okay, you need to be able to remember things, but you need to experiment and experience as well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Yep. So that was it, that chapter, really. A lot about James Dyson. And that's the section, isn't it, James? That's uh, yeah. the two parts of that section. Yeah. Okay. So part five is called The Blame Game. And chapter 11 is all about this Libyan Arab Airlines flight in the early 70s, which is quite 
quite a story, really. I think, did you say it was a bit of a blockbuster? Oh, I thought, you're not reading a management book here. It was a great narrative. Mm. It's about a kind of cat and mouse antics of a military jet and this Libyan airliner and, oh, it fires a shot, it comes up next to them. Are we going to shoot it down? Boom. And, and it's really engaging. It's a great way of, like, putting things together before he comes to a, a kind of conclusion yeah. on it all. So it was like a, a period of very high tension in the Middle East. And it was basically, yes. uh, it was an Arab airline and it, it strayed over Libya, uh, over Israeli airspace. The Libby, the Israeli jets engaged with it and they didn't, as it turns out, the people on the plane didn't realise they were Israeli jets, even though they had the Star of David. Yeah, on the side you them. wouldn't see that if yeah. you're living in the Middle East, I don't quite know. Yeah. But... So they didn't realise and then they thought they were being hijacked. So they were actually going to land, and then they pulled up again, didn't they? And then, and then they, as you say, they eventually got shot down. And not, yeah. many, not many people survived, did they? No, and, and the point was, they just blamed the Israelis for shooting them down, where it was a bit more complicated than that, than it always is. But we, there was, people didn't really want to learn from that event, and they just wanted to blame the Israelis. And uh, yeah, that's the theme of the chapter, our desire to blame people and how some people really are, are very vulnerable. Politicians in particular, reading this book, I think it's pretty hard for them to win because people, heads have got a role kind of thing. Yeah, it's the human action. Because they did look at the black box of yeah. this airline jet that crashed and did see that it was a combination of, of things. One spoke French, they were both suffering from food poisoning. There was a whole bunch of things, wasn't there? Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. I think the food poisoning was the later airline one, but yeah. uh, it, yeah, I'm getting my story's a bit mixed. Just, but the, the point is the same. It was the black box analysis made the future tragedies that are going to be less likely. There was, uh, I think it talked on 239, said in the aftermath of the shooting down, new laws, protocols were developed to yeah. reduce the number of inadvertent attacks on civilian aircraft. Although sadly that didn't happen over Kiev, did it, with that Malaysian Airlines mm. thing getting shot down. But mm. yeah. So that's how it started. I was, it was talking how we, we like to blame, but I, I, in, it's a, a completely different uh, bunch of reading I've been doing recently, James. Go on. I'm getting a puppy, and I've just been, it's, right. it's a while since I've had a dog, okay. and I've been reading about puppy training and reading all kinds of nonsense from dog psychologists. Not nonsense, but the, the, the basic bottom line is that blame and punishment doesn't really work. If you rub your dog's nose in its doodah and shout at it, that's not going to do anything. And it's all about positive reinforcement and treats and positively commending good behavior and not blaming bad behavior. So I, I just thought there was an interesting yeah. analogy between dog training and <laughs> what Matthew Syed was saying. What are you getting? Uh, getting a little Labrador. Okay. Yeah. So nice. hopefully it'll be all right. Yeah. Oh, good. yeah. Oh, you've been through all that recently, haven't you? Yeah, <clears throat> yes. I have read one of those two dogs, haven't you? A cockapoo or a labradoodle? No, it's, a toy, it's a toy poodle. It's a toy poodle. Oh, it's a proper poodle. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yes. I know it's fluffy. I've seen you with yeah. a fluffy thing. You need training, but yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. You have to come around and train for Okay, so then he goes so then he goes on a bit more. He's talking about the chief technology officer of a bank. Yeah. And yeah. there was an IT Who, failure and yeah, and I just thought the guy who was the chief technology officer did all the stress testing, did everything, and there was just one of those things happened, and the, the failure cost them millions of dollars. 
but heads must roll. When in fact, I'm not sure he really was to blame. And uh, But it's almost a management technique that we believe should be used. But then it talks a little later that actually it's maybe not such a good management technique to use. Uh, and it talked about nurses a little later, which I'll come to. But do you, have, do you have anything more to say about that, James? No, no, it's just, it was just it was interesting, wasn't it, Al? Uh, I, I thought it was really interesting and how, how you as a manager deal with people. And it, it went on 245 talking about two different types of... It goes back to what we said in the yeah. uh, last time about the memorial nurse unit, which they looked at one particular area, unit three, which was rated the least open culture. And the attitude yeah. of that one was blame. The nurse manager was very hands-off. The, what the nurse manager wore was a business suit. Mm. Uh, they basically, they, the attitude towards staff was they were, they were kids needing discipline mm. and they were very observant of reporting structures. And then, so what did the staff think of that nursing manager? They treated, that manager treated you as guilty if you make a mistake. The staff's view of errors would be you get put on trial. So basically, keep quiet. Whereas in the best nursing unit, the most open culture, mm. the attitude there was about learning. The nurse manager is very hands-off. The, the clothes the nurse manager wore was just nursing scrubs. She or He or she saw the staff as capable and seasoned, and the staff saw the manager as a superb leader and a great nurse, and any errors were viewed as normal, natural, and very important to document. Yeah. So it just shows how management attitude can change the whole yeah. blame approach. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Let's see what else I've got. So the next thing then is, where are we here? I'm just looking at page 248. There's one bit of advice where we we jump to conclusions and blame people. So I think it talked about someone Mm. tearing across three lanes in front of you. Oh, yeah, okay. What an idiot. Learn to drive, mate. But then, so we instantly think they're a bad driver and then said, oh, have you ever gone across three lanes of motorists? Oh, yeah, I did once, but uh, I thought a kid was going to step out. And he said, how did that guy wasn't avoiding... We, 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 we draw conclusions very quickly. We, mm. It's a mindset that is a bit of a human thing we need to try to you know, change, I think. Mm. So blame's not a good thing, and that's what that... It leads to pretty bad outcomes, and mm. uh, poor old politicians, if we can be sympathetic to politicians, they're going to struggle to not be blamed for things. Yeah. Uh, they're going to be condemned in the newspapers and all of that. But then mm. it, it goes, chapter, the next chapter of this section talks yeah. about... the second victim, yeah. And, and the name that I just, gosh, I remember, it talks about a lady, Sharon Shoesmith. Yeah. So what do you know about Sharon so, so she was the director of children's services, wasn't she? For, was it Brent? Brent Council? Um, I can't, you know what? Oh, Haringey. Haringey, that was it. Haringey. And um, it's a terrible story. People might not remember it, but go on. Yeah. Tell them the story, James. A little boy died because he'd been abused by his, his mother and her boyfriend and someone else. Uh, it's a terrible story. But basically, the papers and the son in particular whipped up this thing that Sharon Shoesmith had blood on her hands yeah. and, and they ran photos uh, of asking, do you know these people? And they set up a petition and Sharon Shoesmith got death threats and had to go into hiding. Oh, it's terrible. He great, mate. great analogy. He said it was very, something close to the Salem witch trials. You know, yeah. you basically, I had to study that for my O-level English literature, I remember. Oh, yeah. And it was basically, they would, they would, you would dunk you in the water and, and if you drowned, you weren't a witch. But yeah. if you come up to survive, you were one. So it was like, that was how she was treated. But it was awful. And uh, what, what happened was then that social workers 
football starts to lead to profession. Actually, two things. The number of children who were removed from their families soared because the social workers that were left went into overdrive because they yeah. didn't want to get blamed for stuff. And also, children became a lot less safe. Um, so it was absolutely counterproductive. Yeah, it was basically saying what blame does, really. This fear of getting blamed for something is, is like really like yeah. an impact on the whole social services. And uh, so, yeah. on and two, then, I was just going to say on 254, he introduces this concept of second victim. Um, and studies show that professionals suffer feelings of distress, agony, anguish, fear, guilt, and depression. Yeah. Once they've been blamed for something. Yep. And that then takes into another area, which was a, a British Airways flight, which I think yeah. was the biggest near miss ever in the UK, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Where they were landing a plane in fog. And actually, the poor pilot did everything it would seem, because the black box showed he did, that possibly could be done under the circumstance. But they yeah. actually trialed him in court, didn't they? He went to Isleworth yeah. Court and... Yeah. Pretty bad. Someone had to be blamed for that. And again, I think that was the press baying for blood. They were kind of, how can, because he basically set all the fire alarms off in, was it the Penta Hotel in, in Heathrow? Yeah. It, it was literally 50 inches away from the roof yeah. of the Penta Hotel. Yeah. So pretty close. And uh, yeah, it was just one of those terrible But it was awful, where, wasn't it? It was just a sequence of events where... Loads, they'd stacked up the plane so that the radar mm. that's supposed to lock onto your autopilot actually had locked on to the plane that was too close uh, yeah. because the airport hadn't followed protocol. So the yeah. pilot didn't know where he was. And yeah. uh, there was all kinds of contributory factors, but didn't they, they did all that food poisoning and a couple of the people were in the cockpit, but somebody had to take, be accountable and be blamed. And the poor old pilot had to be in it. And then it ends quite tr- uh, kind of tragically, doesn't it? Mm. So he, he actually, Went back to Scotland, where he was from, and he actually uh, committed suicide, didn't he? Which yeah, was, uh, yeah, so that's the victim. He, he, he had done everything, and yeah, terrible. And did we learn? Well, because it was aviation, you learn from the black box, mm. and you learn, actually, it wasn't really the uh, pilot's fault. It was a combination of various factors, but we did get, as a result of public pressure, and again, criminal justice system, Reading it, I'm, I'm reading all the extra non-evidence. It would seem that maybe, maybe he shouldn't have been convicted. Okay. But yeah. Anything else? On no, just I think the conclusion would be careful blaming because it, it, people go into kind of lockdown, don't say anything, and yeah. learning opportunities no longer are available. Right, okay. The last part. So the last part of the book, part six, is called creating a growth culture. And chapter 13 starts with a very recognisable figure, David Beckham. And he's taken a penalty for England. Very crucial, very crucial match. It's 2003. England have got to qualify for the World Cup. Sorry, 2000. I've got that wrong. Sorry, 2001. And England have got to qualify for the 2002 World Cup. And he he manages to, to score this goal in injury time. It was fantastic. I, I can still remember it. it. You yeah. watch it on YouTube. Yeah. I think the YouTube video plays it with Nessa Dormer in the background. Right. It's like, so it's, it's three, three minutes into our injury time. Yeah. It's like the final kick of the ball. I think yeah. we were one all. And, or no, we were trailing 2-1. And we had to at least draw to get into the World Cup. We're going out of the World Cup. Everyone's mm. going home. Beckham mm. gets a free kick. 
And he scores. It's like the pressure on that guy, the mental resilience of him to achieve it, it's got to take your hat off to him. Yeah, I can remember watching it. Oh, well, yeah. rewatch it on YouTube. It's quite emotional, actually. Okay. Yeah, it's really, it's great, yeah. So anyway, so it's about Beckham. What a lucky fella David Beckham is, eh? He just has that talent in his feet, or maybe not. That's what he said. So what he says, when I think about free kicks, I think about all the failures. It took tons of misses before I got it. And he talks about how much he... He practiced as a child. He did like 50,000 with his yeah, dad, his, didn't he? His dad said 50,000 free kicks, yeah. Yeah, it's just incredible, isn't it? It was incredible. So the guy, it's a bit linked to Matthew Side's other book. Was that Bounce, where he talks right. about 10,000 hour rule and the other yeah. the American writer? It's in that territory a bit. But okay. yeah, Beckham creating, he believed in himself and he was happy to miss 49,999 free kicks till he got it right. And then there was a, a, an advert that was a bit controversial. It quotes my, uh, Michael Jordan okay. uh, on 271, 272. Yeah. And he says, I, in the advert, it was on TV, a big advert on TV for Nike. And he said, I've missed more than 9,000 shots. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot, and I missed it. Hmm. Like, what, what on earth? But it, basically, Michael Jordan... He was trying to say mental toughness and heart are a lot stronger than other things you might have. And that's the most important thing. And it links back to what James Dyson said and, you know, how he kept making mistakes. But yeah, that's the kind of thing. Okay, so on 273, I like these. He's talking about two things in your brain. So this guy, Jason Moser, who's a psychologist, um, measured in his subjects two things. One was called error-related negativity, and the other thing was called error positivity. And it's all about how if you've got a mindset where you think that you can grow and you think that you can learn from your mistakes, you're going to get on far more than people who have got a fixed mindset. You've got to free yourself up, move away from your fixed mindset, and, and try and engage with your errors. And in engaging with your errors, that's when you'll improve. Which really resonated with me. Oh, I, I thought it was great. It's very much linked to psychological attitude, whether you believe it or you disbelieve it kind of thing, and how big an impact it can have on outcomes. Mm. So, yeah, I thought, thought it was fascinating. Again, really well-researched, getting some great information from psychologists. Yeah, I thought it was excellent. So then he, he goes on to talk about these soldiers in America, these cadets at West Point. Yeah. Which is a military academy. and Like the elite academy, wasn't it, James? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the elite place to go. And they've got this thing called the whole candidate score, where they score their candidates along a number of dimensions. But then in 2004, another psychologist, Angela Lee Duckworth, approaches them. She wants to measure the grit of the, the these cadets. So she has this questionnaire that she gives them. And what it turns out is that um, the grit rating was significantly superior, it was a significantly superior predictor of success than the whole candidate score yeah. that they previously used. And I think what Matthew Syed is saying is that grit is strongly related to the growth mindset. Yeah, grit, another word might be resilience. Might resilience, be. yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not just having all these other things, it's the ability to bounce back. Yeah. And I, I think if you have the mental belief that you can bounce back you're you're much more likely to yeah um, 
And it's, yeah, it was basically, that's linked to the whole Beckham thing. I, I forgot about this, but it brings Beckham back in, doesn't it? Or was, or am I, I'm I getting that's that a bit later on. Is it? A bit later, sorry, it's a bit later. It, it, you know, talks about the resilience of... And as well, James Dyson, yeah. And, and, and his 5,127 prototypes. Exactly. And he, he didn't give up. He didn't give up. Now, there's quite a lot of quotes, isn't it? Thomas Edison failed how many thousand yeah. times and, and yeah. all of that. But yeah, grit is the key factor. To well, I did, the last sentence of this chapter really resonated with me. He said, we progress fastest when we face up to failure and learn from it. Yeah. yeah. Which links so, us on to the next chapter. Redefining failure. Yeah. And it's basically reiterating what's been said but what the conclusion i drew from this one is that we you know failure is a great thing it's not yeah. something to shy away from it's a learning opportunity you like that you like that idea of the school didn't you the, uh, yeah about, about kids ki- yeah and just uh, yeah they talk about how some kids they've never failed in life especially you might have been to some kind of hothouse exam factory and you've got all A stars and uh, all of that kind of stuff. And uh, what, what, well, I've, one of my kids is, is not quite, but almost like that. And the best thing that ever happened to her was failing a driving test. Okay. It's great. I think she failed it two or three times. Uh, she probably right. wouldn't like me saying this. Um, <laughs> the, the point would be, uh, she, I think she failed it the second time. She never told me again. And then she came in one day about six months later with the, a pass thing. And she'd actually funded her own driving lessons to make sure she passes this test because right. she'd always got good so I, think, so I think it's really important to learn to fail because mm. that's life isn't it in life you, you've got to learn how to duck you've got to learn how to mm. you know get back up again so it okay. did uh, later on it i think they talked about a, a school in uh, wimbledon uh, which yeah. again is probably full of uh, hothouse exam kind of factories i know the school and um, it's a very good school but uh, a lot of people get good grades there and the i think the headmistress realized this and she had a failure week where people did things that were not really in their comfort zone. And, yep. uh, yeah. Yeah. The, the other thing I liked on, on the whole education thing was on 289 about maths mm. and how oh, the Chinese are really good at maths. I think it's number one in the world, whereas the US and the UK, we like 26 and I think 36 is the US. So they're not that great, yeah. but it was about attitude. In the UK, I'm not very mathematically minded. Give me a break. Whereas it's not like that in China. It's like a language. You've got to persevere and mm. become more articulate at it. Yeah. It's not something you can duck out of. And mm. again, that's maybe what helps them in that growth mindset that they, they can become good at maths. Mm. Okay. I like that. I like this. I'm, I'm 290. This idea of self-handicapping. It talks about how far people are prepared to go to protect their ego at the expense of their own long-term success. Yeah. I thought, yeah, it's amazing, isn't it, that we are not prepared to fail. We, we want to blame. It was about blaming, wasn't it? So mm. was that where the students all made it very visible at his Oxford University yeah. College that they were all going out on the lash yeah. the night before the exam? Yeah. They could blame it on that if they didn't do so well. So they were looking. Yeah. It's amazing that people, but hey, yeah, just, just, it's a human phenomenon, apparently. Yeah, incredible, isn't it? And over the page 292, self-esteem, what do you think about that one? Yeah, so he says it's vastly overrated uh, as a psychological trait, or va- overvalued. Yeah. What we really need is, as you said before, resilience. Resil- and we need a bit of humility that we're not, we're not invincible and we're not 100% and we're here to improve things, but I might not have got it. And what can we do? Okay. 
Yeah. And, th- and then our good friend, Mr. Beckham, reappears. Goes, goes back to him, yes. Sure. Which, wow. I, the guy, you've got, a, I know as a scouser, James, he probably, because this was when he was a Man United player. Yeah. And I think what he, he you might not recall, but he, he basically uh, gave a little, this guy in the World Cup pulled his hair, you digged him in the back. And as he was getting up, he just flicked him with his heel a tiny bit. Yeah. And the guy looked like he'd just been machine gone down. Yeah. He, the opponent, and he was screaming on the floor. And so Beckham got sent off. Yeah. And the game that he got sent off from went to penalties. And we lost on penalties. Maybe had Beckham been playing, he would, because he was such a good penalty taker as well, we would have worked. Simone was the player. Right, yeah. Tiny bit of contact. The Argentinian crying like a baby. Mm. Got sent off. And then Beckham was persona non grata to make it, to put it mildly. Yeah, I remember it. Yeah. I remember it now, the book mentioned about it, like burning effigies of him on lampposts. And, yeah. and people were saying, I'm not sure Beckham's going to last the season. The psychological pressure on the guy, he's yeah. just going to have a nervous breakdown with all of this. Uh, he was constantly in the papers, yeah. pursued by cameras and journalists all the time. His One national newspaper turned his face into a dartboard. So you could throw darts at his face. <laughs> it was just unbelievable. You might remember, James, as a, as a team that's only just started winning trophies again. Yeah, United won the Premier League, the yes. FA Cup and the Champions League. The first and so far only English club ever to do that. <laughs> and also he won, he came second in the World Player of the Year. So the yeah. point is, what a resilient guy to yeah. come back from all of that. It's wow. He must okay. have some mental strength, that fella. Yeah. Okay. So the last chapter is called The Big Picture. Yeah, I didn't... The highbrow it, it says Coda, Coda, the big picture. Yeah. I didn't quite... It was... Well, is this a... It's a bit too high. Is this what you conclude when you study PPE or something? Coda. Yeah. I, don't, I didn't quite know what Coda meant, but it was, uh, it was an, an interesting analogy of history through the centuries, I think. Yeah, I liked it. I liked it. Yeah, idea. What, what he's saying is that ideas were handed down through generations... And you weren't allowed to argue with the ideas that were handed down uh, to the point of being put to death. And then the Greeks came along and, and changed that by starting to question things, and it, the, which is black box thinking by you know questioning yeah. things, having evidence base. Uh, the world is no longer flat and stuff yeah. like that, wasn't yeah. it? Or we, the, yeah. the Earth doesn't revolve around, yeah. or the Sun revolves around the Earth, didn't it? Say something like yeah. that. Yeah. Just incredible, really. And he talks a bit about how, obviously, that ground to a halt until you know, the 16th, 17th century. Yeah, we didn't progress, did we? And then the Greeks came along and there was massive progress with a different kind of open-minded thinking. Mm. Just amazing, really. It's really, again, really well written. He's obviously bringing a bit of history and philosophy and all of that into it. He then, on 310, I thought it was a great quote, where he brought it then into... Uh, real life, he said, managers in charge of piloting a new product or service typically do whatever they can to make sure the pilot is perfect right out of the starting gate. And ironically, this hunger to succeed can later inhibit the success of the official launch. Too often, managers in charge of pilots design optimal conditions rather than representative ones. Uh, Therefore, the pilot doesn't produce knowledge about what won't work. And we're afraid of failing. And, yeah. and that certainly wasn't what the guy from uh, Dropbox did, was it? And look how no. successful he was. You know? Yeah. I like that idea because he's talking about pilot schemes there, isn't he? I think they're quite, if done in the right way, I think they're very useful. And then on, 
on 3.11, he talks about this idea of having a pre-mortem when a team um, considers why a plan might go wrong before it's even been put into action. And he says it's the ultimate fail-fast technique because you, you're trying to get people to surface what their concerns may be before you've even started on, on whatever the thing is that you're doing. Yeah, I thought it was really good. Um, yeah. Then just to finish off the whole book, I thought, again, how, how it's written, it's not just a business book. He, he, the final section of the chapter talks, it's a clear afternoon, it's early spring, and he visited Martin Bromley, the pilot who story opened the books. You might remember the guy whose wife died, who basically started this whole thing. And then it goes on as the sun began to set over the horizon, the front doors swung open, Adam and Victoria returned from uh, school. It was Adam's, it was just like really nicely written, his proper rich story there. And uh, it just talks about the lessons that have been learned since 2005 from Martin, the pilot, trying to get something out of his wife's death that other people can benefit from. And he, mm. I think he had some charity, but just a really nice way to wrap it all up. It's just symptomatic of the whole. It's just a great, it's a great crafted story with some yeah. great science. Really good book. We should really probably dedicate this episode to that poor lady, Helene Bromley. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Without that conversation, this probably wouldn't have happened. Okay, so I, I really enjoyed Black Box Thinking. I thought it was well-written, engaging, lots of stories, as you said before. Yeah. And just you know, it's hugely referenced. There's pages and pages at the back of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I think I could read it all again as well and probably learn a load more stuff, which is always yeah. a sign of a good book. Yeah, yeah. And I can, I can see how I, I'd um, put some of the ideas into practical yeah, uh, application in our business. Yeah, definitely. So, so it's definitely I, a book to read again without any shadow yeah. of a doubt. Um, I'd highly recommend that one. I would, yes. There you go. Okay. Well, this right, is Sean. Then. Nice to be talking to you. Yes. And you, James. Yep. Cheers. Cheers.